0: All right, we are back, and happy days actually are not really... Well, happy days are here again. But as Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mother once noted, Franklin may be popular today, but a few years from now, he may be the most hated man in the country, or words to that effect. Before I put my two cents into this, I think I'll quote uh, from the Sacramento News and Review's Letters to Obama. letter from our pal Jeannie Keltner host of Soapbox on Sacramento Access Television and the co-editor of Because People Matter, said, Jeannie, Oh, how we want to believe in the change you promise, to believe that this country can change to something closer to its ideals. We want to believe that our long national nightmare is over, but it's not. Somehow this country allowed the president and his people to break laws and violate the Constitution, to wiretap and spy on us without warrants, to arrest and hold without charges, to torture, sometimes to death, to construct phony pretext for real wars, to destroy other countries and kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people, not to mention election fraud and the glaring lies and inconsistencies in the official story of 9-11. And now, we just let them walk away? Worse, let them come back later into positions of power as the Iran-Contra criminals did, because their crimes and lies were not exposed? evidence was not made public and they were not held accountable for their illegal actions? We need a public investigation to stop them from getting away, for example, with regretting that pre-war intelligence was bad when it's proven that they created the bad intelligence to justify their unprovoked attack on Iraq. I don't care if they're punished. I just want them exposed. Well, we agree. And, uh, it's, uh, Ridiculous to try and attempt to to put forth uh, the ideas of how this country needs to change in 20 minutes, but, you know, I I think we should give it a try. The Radio Parallax list of of things to consider was somewhat arbitrarily divided into issues of four groups, each of five topics. The groups would be the military industry, the domestic powers that be, international forces, and anti-progressive forces. All right, in the first category of the military industry, something we've, uh, we, we've talked about in a brief commentary, we've divided matters up into five separate topics, the Iraq war and the war on terror, number one, number two, arms salesmen of the world and mercenaries, number three, nuclear tensions, number four, U.S. unilateralism, and number five, that elusive peace dividend. When it comes to the Iraq war versus the, quote, war on terror, unquote, it seems pretty obvious that uh, the Iraq war, costing two plus billion dollars a week, is not turning out to be such a good investment. The statistics indicate that the cost, in real terms, of the Iraq war now exceeds that of World War II. That might actually be the most astonishing statistic of the entire Bush administration. The costs of an effort to defeat Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and their fascist allies while developing an atomic bomb along the way has now been exceeded by the costs of a war that has... deposed a dictator and... secured oil leases and... Hmm, what else? Um... Well, there's 100,000 dead Iraqis as collateral damage. Um... 4,000 dead Americans. Let's see, looking for some good news. Well, the Shiites aren't as oppressed as they used to be. No, clearly, near the top of the agenda, the war in Iraq must come to an end and we must withdraw our forces. And no, everyone's not coming home because uh, last week the U.S. officially opened its embassy in Iraq. It's the largest foreign mission in the world at a cost of $592 million. President Obama intends to put uh, our eye back on the ball, back on the original concept of the war on terror, and focus more on its uh, cradle, as it were, in Afghanistan. So while a war in Iraq must be brought to an end, we have to be cautious not to avoid yet another quagmire in Afghanistan. The Military Industry Part 2, the one we covered in our commentary, Armed salesmen and mercenaries? What we need here truly is a national discussion over what makes sense to invest in. Things like a strategic defense initiative, which nobody's ever shown, can work. We could safely stop funding that. And by the way, political realities would tell us that these military industrial corporations are not going to just go away. So we may need to find something better for them to do, like... A base on the moon, like sending men to Mars. High-speed rail. A partial solution may be to redirect some of their efforts into non-lethal products. Military industry part three, nuclear tensions. The USSR ceased to exist in 1992, and yet the U.S. and Russia still point nuclear-tipped missiles at one another. Quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. So we should start to... Uh, start not deploying those aforementioned uh, anti-ballistic missiles as provocations while we work on further reductions in those nuclear arsenals. This spills over into the war on terror because there's probably no easier source of uh, fissionable materials than the aging Russian nuclear arsenal. Military industry part four, well... Our unilateralism uh, needs to go. They're talking about closing Guantanamo very soon through executive order, and um, one hopes that they do. This is an embarrassment for this nation all around the globe. Rejoining the world uh, family of nations may be one of Obama's easier tasks, actually. One we can certainly be pretty optimistic about. Last item on the list, a peace dividend. Well, we didn't get one at the end of the Cold War. It's time we got one now. Imagine the good that could be accomplished by not spending $2 billion a week in Iraq. So in summary, when it comes to the military-industrial complex, the key is create an actual savings for a peace dividend and then spend it peacefully. All right, second cluster of items as we see it, the domestic powers that be. If the military industry might be uh, the most dangerous one to our future, uh, coming up uh, a close second surely has to be the oil, coal, and gas interests. There's been some political noise for 40 years about curbing independence on foreign oil, but in fact there's kind of a collaboration of foreign and domestic oil men pushing us to do exactly the opposite. These are truly powerful interests. They're not going to go away very easily. But if we're going to stop the increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're going to have to stop burning carbon. Solar energy may be one or two breakthroughs away from meeting most, more of our needs, but uh, when you consider the large areas needed for collection and the unsuitable weather in many areas... It seems unavoidable. This is going to be an insufficient answer to all of our needs under even the best of circumstances. The same can be said for wind, unfortunately. So unless there's some major breakthrough in tapping the oceans or, or, or you know, geothermal heating or some other non-carbon producing uh, uh, energy source, it looks as though we're going to have to have nuclear power as one of our important options for the future. We pretty much stopped funding nuclear fusion research to any significant levels three decades ago. The big joke about fusion is that it's 50 years away and always will be. But personally, I think if we'd spent the money 30 years ago, uh, as we should have, we might be 10 or 15 years away. We might still be only 10 or 15 years away, but uh, unless we like you know, throw some dough at that problem, it's, uh, it's not going to resolve itself conventional nuclear reactors have their problems no secret there but on next week's program we're going to talk to uh, Tom Bleese Davis author about his book prescription for a planet that talks about how some new reactors relying on a different type of technology might be able to burn most most of the energy that's found in uranium and plutonium and uh, reduce our nuclear waste disposal problems while generating much, much, much more energy than fission plants currently do. So as we see it, we're going to need solar, we're going to need wind, we're going to need nuclear powers, both types, fission and fusion, if we're going to be driving those uh, fuel cell cars around or hydrogen cars or electric vehicles or whatever, without increasing the atmosphere's CO2. Clearly, among the list of not viable options are coal gasification, tar sands, ethanol, biodiesel, etc. with the caveat that biodiesel may offer a partial solution if some of these, uh, these technologies that are using fungus, something we talked about in the program a few weeks ago, if that pans out, that might contribute to some of the short-term solutions to our energy needs. Before leaving the topic, I want to mention the fact that uh, the world wastes gigantic, stupendous amounts of methane in the world's oil fields by just burning it. We could capture some of that methane and use it in the short term, uh, again, to drive cars around and provide a lot of our energy needs. Methane's got a problem, and then when it leaks into the atmosphere, it's a much more potent uh, greenhouse gas than is CO2. So we're going to need more carbon sequestration, which, which we need anyway but nobody's sure whether that's going to be really possible on a large scale. We're back to basically solar, wind, and nuclear, and uh, some other miracle if one arises, but I don't think we can count on that. All right, we're talking about the domestic powers that be in our second cluster of items, and uh, high on that list would be uh, (laughs) sensible economic regulation. Some on the left think that the free market has been totally discredited by the Bush administration, I don't think that's the correct conclusion. A free market can, in many instances, uh, solve economic problems for us brilliantly. However, those who are professing to advocate it uh, for the past couple decades are people who hate the free market. They've pursued corporate consolidations, government favoritism, stock manipulations for short-term gain, uh, all of which has very little to do with, you know, the market. Things like uh, price supports for corn need a second look. That, that's fueling some of the ethanol mania. Subsidizing cheap corn has also turned us into a nation of fat people with ubiquitous junk foods while we're uh, uh, basically you know, putting animals in concentration camps, which as a sidelight are destroying the utility of our antibiotics. Corn, uh, corn subsidies need a, need a second look. And above all else, corporate welfare. Needs to be challenged. All right, category domestic powers at B, part four, health care reform. We've got to have some kind of universal health coverage in this country while retaining private options for care. In other words, we've got to do what the other advanced industrial nations are doing. Currently, America spends a higher percentage of money on health care than most other industrial nations, despite not having this supposedly too expensive universally available uh, care. So again, we're really talking about corporate favoritism winning out over the general welfare. These insurance companies, for-profit health corporations, and big pharmaceutical firms need to be held in check. That Bush prescription drug plan, that was a classic example of a giveaway to big corporations, corporate welfare, actually restricting the use of the free market to lower prices and, uh, and really Hard to find a better example of the the hypocrisy of some of these so-called market advocates. Final item of change under domestic powers that be, tax reform. For the past generation, corporate taxes in America have been cut while the citizenry has made up the difference with taxes and borrowing, and then more borrowing, and then still more borrowing. And of course, while we're doing all that borrowing, we're encouraging taxable industries to ship their businesses and production overseas, often by providing tax breaks to do so. That's not such a smart thing. Um, A flat rate income tax probably would be a good idea, never going to be implemented. Despite all the talking heads they hire to tell us that the wealthy pay more than their share of taxes, they in fact pay less. Therefore, everyone paying an equal amount does not appeal to them. I think it should be clear that if they were paying more than their fair share, these powers that be would enact a flat tax tomorrow. Our housing bubble in this country has been been fueled by the mortgage deduction. Other nations, by the way, uh, do not let people go out and buy a second home and then deduct the mortgage interest payments. This has been integral uh, to our, our crazy housing bubble in this country and, and needs a second look. We need a simpler tax code and fewer loopholes. And we need to quit encouraging people to move to Bermuda. One happy note in tax reform, Obama and his uh, Democratic allies in Congress seem to agree with the outgoing administration and their GOP allies in Congress that we should keep an estate tax but raise the limits on it. This has been a tremendous burden on the middle class. I know people out there think this is a tax on the rich. It most assuredly is not. It's not a tax paid by Rockefellers when they die. Those of you who thought this was a tax on the rich were misinformed. And this is actually uh, already one of the initial victories of, uh, of Obama, assuming that, uh, that he and his allies in Congress are, are men of their words. We hope they are. And you know what? We've covered the military industry, five parts, the domestic powers that be, five parts, and I'm tired. I don't want to do ten more. Let's save that for next week. And I'd stress that I'd like to hear from you, dear listener, about what you think about what I've just said. We're going to probably, we're going to post uh, our list on the website, and about every quarter, every four months or so, we're going to go down the list and try and grade the new administration as to how it's doing in these various areas. As far as the the first grade we can give in terms of the tax reform, we're going to award an A. You know we, we have so much to talk about and we've only got an hour so let's uh, let's let's defer part two of the 20 things Obama needs to consider and uh, talk about some news items. Here's a uh, item from the field of science that may have some bearing on politi- our political future. The law of unintended consequences uh, comes into play in this case of an examination of Macquarie Island, a 50 square mile dot in the Southern Indian Ocean, about halfway between Australia and Antarctica. The island's a World Heritage Site, it's the only place on Earth supposedly where the Earth's mantle is being exposed on the surface of the planet. It was discovered in 1910, and of course the nasty seafarers of the era began visiting it to slaughter its fur seals, elephant seals, and penguins for their fur and blubber. When these sailors docked, the rats and mice abandoned their ships and took up residence. Following a common tradition, the sailors also introduced rabbits to provide food for stranded seamen. Noticing that the rats and mice were causing problems, they let loose some cats. As you might imagine, this didn't pan out so well. The cats and rabbits proliferated. The uh, cats fed on the rabbits and native birds and the mice and the cats. The rabbits were stripping the island's vegetation bare. So, realizing there was an ecosystem out of control and spiraling into into trouble, (laughs) scientists stepped in. They introduced a virus to kill the rabbits, and the population went from 130,000 down to 20. But then the cats were hungrier. They began feeding on the burrowing seabirds. So researchers began shooting the cats. By 2000, there were none left. But then the rabbits began proliferating again and and are now stripping the island of its remaining vegetation. They were, in fact, blamed for a landslide in 2006 that wiped out part of an important penguin colony. So now they're implementing a $16 million rescue plan that intends to kill all of the rabbits, all the rats, all the mice. Good luck with that. Oh, they got a shot at the rabbits. They're never going to get the rats and mice. It's a cautionary tale. Sometimes the best of intentions don't work out the way you'd hope. It's like that old nursery rhyme, but the little old lady that swallowed a spider to eat the fly. Poor old lady, I think she'll die. We hope this is not a metaphor for administrative actions to come. And speaking of things that seem like a good idea that might go wrong, I I got a quote from Jerome Ringo, who wrote an essay in uh, Scientific American Earth about the Apollo Alliance. Remember those guys we talked about, Phil Angelides' essay in The Bee a couple months ago? We don't have time to go into this in detail, but boy, what a load of hot air. Here's the only quote I'll make. In a well-regarded 2004 study, my organization, the Apollo Alliance, showed that a $300 billion investment in the country's economic and energy future over 10 years would produce 3.3 million jobs. Well, maybe you will, but I have a feeling what the Apollo Alliance is interested in is the billions of dollars to be invested. I'm sure they'd like a lot of that was invested in them. Anyway, I think I'm getting a little snarky. Let's go back to Happy Days are Here Again and take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll be back with our good pal, Dr. Andy.